but we really do believe in one by one. It's time to end exploitation. It's time. We've been fighting slavery for years, for generations. And tragically, it's bigger today than it's ever been in human history. And it's about time we put a stop to this. Maybe on our watch, we can put a stop to this injustice. And so if God speaks to your heart tonight and you want to become a freedom builder, maybe you can't come out with us to Afghanistan or Pakistan or different places, but actually through your prayers and through your support, you actually can. And you can make an impact to lives across the world. So if God speaks to your heart tonight and you want to become a freedom builder, you can also do that. I'm going to show you one final video and then I'm going to turn to God's word. So we're going to show you a video about the work we're specifically doing to fight bonded labor in Pakistan. Thank you. The global pandemic saw a rise in worldwide exploitation and one by one knew its work amongst victims of slavery was only just getting started. In Pakistan, our team heard the tragic news of a three-year-old girl named Mercy who had been raped and murdered in a brick factory. A few weeks later, a 10-year-old in one of our education programs was attacked and raped. The dangers of abuse and risk of exploitation is incredibly high in Pakistan's 20,000 brick kilns. After hearing these more recent stories, we were determined to step up and double our efforts. The children in our care are now receiving full-time education, a loving, caring home environment, and we are already seeing transformation. One by One's heart is to end exploitation of the vulnerable across the world. We exist to provide urgent care and meet immediate needs for the lost and broken. We do this through restorative care, educational support, and by empowering sustainable living to prevent exploitation. We have been thrilled at the growing army of people rising up against the giant of modern-day slavery, saying enough is enough, and standing together to see freedom for the captives. Our freedom builders all over the world are seeking to bring hope, joy, and true restoration to lives that have been trapped and exploited for years. Slavery is a man-made crisis, but imagine what can be accomplished together. How do we end exploitation? Together, one life at a time. The giant of modern day slavery can be defeated as we rescue lives one by one. Do you know the joy of um, watching One by One over this last decade now? It's been 10 years next month that we opened our first base out in Kenya. And to see lives that were written off a decade ago, one of the kids uh, who's in our care out there, a decade ago, she'd been written off by the village. And when we took her in, her mum and dad had already passed away from HIV-related diseases, as had her siblings. And when we took this little girl in, I remember we, we started her on healthcare, we just gave her a loving home, a safe place to live. And then we started her in education. And I remember some people in the village saying, why would you do that? Why would you waste money on her education? Because she's going to die soon anyway. So why would you want to waste money? And I remember thinking, I don't think investing into a child is ever a waste. I don't think it's ever a waste. And so we did. We started her in education. And the joy of a decade means that I'm delighted to stand here tonight and tell you she's now in her second year of university. And she will shortly graduate. Come on. 
She will shortly graduate to be an accountant. Ooh, she's cleverer than me, I tell you. And I'm so, so honoured. I describe missions as getting a front row seat to watch God do what only God can do. And it's such a joy to go and, and watch children's lives be transformed around the world. It's an incredible honour. Okay, if you've got your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 20. So yesterday, if you were at the ladies' breakfast, we were speaking from John chapter 21. We're skipping back a chapter. We're going to John chapter 20, and I'm just going to read a few verses from verse 24. Verse 24 says, Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. And so he said to them, unless I see his hands and the print of the nails and put my finger into the print and put my finger into the side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. If I said to you, I'm going to speak for just a few moments on uh, one of the disciples. I'm going to speak on Thomas. You probably sat there thinking, okay, Thomas, now which one was that one? John the Beloved, we know. John the one was the one who was always up close with Jesus. Uh, Judas, we know that one. We've got his number. Mm -hmm. Thomas, now which one was Thomas? But if I said to you, I'm going to speak for a few moments on doubting Thomas. We would all be like, "Uh uh-huh, yep, we know him. I remember reading about doubting Thomas and thinking, Lord, I would not have done that. If that was me, I would have not doubted. You know, Thomas had walked with Jesus. He'd talked with Jesus. He'd sat and eaten meals with Jesus. He had firsthand seen Jesus raise the dead, cast out devils, heal the sick, multiply food. Thomas had a front row seat to watch all this. And then in a crucial moment of faith, he messed up. And I read that and thought, Jesus, I would have never done that. If that had been me, I would have never doubted Jesus, not me. And I think sometimes we can read about lives in the Bible. We read about the children in Israel and we think, oh, you moaners and groaners, Lord, I would never moan. I wouldn't groan, not me. And I think sometimes, you know what might be helpful? To sit and read this in front of a mirror. Because I think if we're all really real, we'll see little bits of the children of Israel in us. And we'll see little bits of Thomas inside of us occasionally. I remember a moment, a challenge of my faith was when Matthew was uh, critically ill with the malaria. And the doctor took me into a side room. His heart, his lungs, his liver and his kidneys has all gone into organ failure. The malaria had also gone cerebral. So once you take out all of those organs, he didn't have a great deal left to play with. And the doctor took me into a side room and she said, Becky, he's got two, maybe three hours left to live. They stopped all the malaria medication because his body was rejecting it. And they just placed him on pain relief until he died. I would love to tell you when the doctor took me into the side room and told me that news, I would love to tell you that I stood up in the doctor's face and said, no, my husband shall live and not die. Get thee behind me, Satan. I'd love to tell you I said that. 
But you know what I did in my crisis of faith moment? I sat hugging a bin as I wrenched into it. Sorry for the brutal, gruesome picture I just painted for you, but that was the truth of where I was at in my moment and my crisis of faith. So just before we pick up our rocks to hurl at Thomas the doubter, let's just be real for a moment and let God reflect on our hearts of where we've been when that challenge came to our lives. That time that that phone call came about a certain diagnosis. That time when you thought you were gonna get that job promotion, but actually it looked like a redundancy. That moment where you found out the news that you weren't ready for, that you'd not expected to have in your life. Doesn't happen to you, right? Happens to other people, but not you, right? And in those moments, how do we really respond? But do you know what I find beautiful about the scriptures? It says, Thomas called the twin. Well, we refer Thomas as the doubter. He doubted, he got it wrong. In that moment of crisis, he got it wrong. And we've got a label for him. And maybe there's people in here who feel like you've been labeled in your life. Well, you know, she's a great person, but well, do you know she battles with anxiety and depression? Well, yeah, he's a great guy, but do you know his business went through bankruptcy and he's got money issues? Well, yeah, they're a great couple, but do you know that back in 1972, she had an affair? And maybe there's labels that have been put over your life. And sometimes those labels come and you feel like you're held back because of this certain label. Do you know what the worst labels are? The labels we hold on to for ourselves. Those labels that hold us back. For years, I would tell tell myself and tell God that I would never publicly speak. I'm happy behind the scenes. Put me in the outbacks of Kenya and I am beyond happy. Microphone, mm-mm-mm. I remember years ago when my husband took on a church, I remember looking at him saying, don't you ever dare put me on the speaking rotor. And my husband, being my husband, completely ignored me, of course. But I'm so glad he did because it pushed me in a boundary that I'd, I'd set for myself. Well, Lord, you know I'm shy. You made me this way. And we put labels on ourselves of what we can and can't do for God. And basically in those moments when we set those labels, we set a boundary of God, I'll go this far, but no further. Well, God, you made me this way. It's your fault, right? And we set labels as to what we can and can't do. But I want to tell you tonight that every label, whether you've put it on yourself or whether somebody's put it on you, every label tonight, I want to be laid at the foot of the cross every label, every situation that's come to define you, to come to hold you back, come to mute you, I break that off in the name of Jesus because tonight you go free. Amen? But what I love about Scripture is it says, now Thomas called the twin. We see that in verse 24 of chapter 20. We see it again in verse 2 of chapter 21. Thomas called the twin. Growing up in church, I read that and thought, well, Thomas obviously has a twin sibling. Follows, he must have a brother or sister, right? Twin sibling, Thomas the twin, it follows. But do you know when you study Thomas, you find out he doesn't have a twin sibling? Do you know that? So why does the Bible refer to him as Thomas the twin when he doesn't have a twin sibling? The Bible's never wrong. If ever you're in doubt, you've got one opinion and the Bible says something else. Let me tell you, you're wrong and this is right. This will never take you off track. This is never inaccurate or wrong. And so Thomas the twin, why does the Bible call him a twin when he didn't have a twin sibling? 
Well, theologians believe that from the moment where Thomas touched the wounds in Jesus, he was so transformed that locals began to know him as a twin of Jesus. The man I had written off through my teen years as the doubter, the Bible refers to as a twin. Is it not the cry of all our hearts to be known as a twin of Jesus Christ? That when people see you, they no longer see you, but they see Christ within you. A twin of Jesus because you carry his hope and his love and his peace and his joy. Thomas the twin, the one I'd written off years ago because he was the doubter. Do you know he was the very first person to take the gospel into what is now known on our map as Pakistan and India. The very nations I'm praying for access and influence into. The one I'd written off was the one who took the gospel there first. And I don't care if people have written you off tonight. I don't care if you've written yourself off tonight. I want to tell you God's written you into his story. He's all he's waiting for is your yes. That's all he's waiting for. He's not waiting for the most intelligent person in the room. He's not waiting for the most academic person or the most influential person. He's not waiting for the wealthiest person in the room. Do you know all he's waiting for? is the most available. The one who says, okay, God, here am I, send me. And you might not have got it all figured out. Trust me, I've got very little figured out. But what I have come to realize is that when we say yes to him, wow, watch what he will do. Watch, watch what he'll do at the other side of your yes. Because on the other side of your yes, are miracles of transformation, are signs and wonders that God is waiting to do in and through your life. Thomas the twin. I want to speak to you briefly on two points tonight. Firstly, Jesus comes to Thomas and he says, look and see. Now, I'd not spoke with Pastor Doug about my message tonight. So when you were praying that, I was like, wow. Because sometimes we just need to have eyes to see. Jesus turns to Thomas and he says, look and see. And the see, it's not a passive seeing, it's an active verb. And the actual, um, the, the translation for the Greek there is to see with the mind, to perceive, to become acquainted with by experience. I shared with some of you this morning, but back in 2006, I became acquainted with by experience, a wound that someone just had to see. It was a little girl living on the streets of Sierra Leone. She simply had no shoes. And so I took her to the marketplace and bought a pair of pink flip-flops for 50 pence. It was such a feeble, insignificant gift. But she approached me that evening and she said, Becky, should I wait in your hotel room? As I said this morning, she thought that I'd spent 50 pence on her so that I could have her body. That scarred me in a deep way. I would have almost got my head more around it. It would have still been so unjust and wrong if she'd have said it to one of the guys on the team. But for a nine-year-old to think of another woman, she'd been so abused living on the streets by men and women that her mind went there for the sake of 50 pence. I became acquainted with by experience. In summer this year, I was out in Kenya doing um, a summer challenge. Uh, myself and Jess was with me at the time. We were walking 42 miles across Kenya, as you do. Uh, it was our summer fundraiser where we got 100 people to walk 42 miles. And we thought, hey, let's do our miles in Kenya because it's 10 years this year of working in Kenya. What I'd not factored in was the lack of bathroom breaks on the 42-mile walk. 
Um, you guys are quiet tonight. You ladies were louder yesterday morning. I'm not used to you being so quiet. You're allowed to talk back to me, unless it's a heckle, and then no, you do not, you know. Um, but we were out in Kenya, and um, all of a sudden, I encountered this little boy. He was herding a group of cows, and this is a sight you see all the time, so more often than not, you don't think anything about it. But the only reason I stopped was this boy was very little. He was very small, and this was the middle of the school day. And so I was walking with one of our graduates who have literally just come through our, our care home in, in Kenya. And I said, go and see why the little boy's not in school. And so he went over to talk and the conversation went on and on. It was longer than I was kind of hoping it would be. I was like, we've got 42 miles to cover here. Come on, can we get this going? And so I went over to join the conversation. And my graduate turned to me and he said, Becky, this is George. He's been trafficked from Uganda. Well, all was okay until I joined the conversation. And unbeknown to me, George's slave masters were watching the situation. And as soon as I went and joined the conversation, they came over and it became very violent very quickly. They began to kick the boy who's just graduated our high school program. Now our graduate is 21. He's a good, strong guy and he's probably far more capable of taking care of himself than I am. However, this particular graduate's just been in our residential center for the last 10 years. And I don't know what it is about that mama bear attitude, but it just comes out, right? And so as he kicked our graduate, I just jumped in front and all of a sudden this fist came flying towards me. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, I'm about to be punched in the face by a trafficker. This has never happened before. I'd intended to keep my nose, but okay, here goes. And thankfully, by the grace of God, just as I jumped in and the fist got to about here, he suddenly realized this woman's jumped in. And so he retracted his hand. I don't know if it's because of my girl or if I just shocked him, but he retracted. But all of a sudden, I came face to face with a trafficker. But unbeknown, what I'd not shared was that the exact time we'd been praying about launching into Uganda. We've not even gone public about it yet. We launched publicly at the end of this month that One by One is going to be launching a brand new base in Uganda in 2023. But we'd been praying, God, do you want, to do us, do you want us to do a work in Uganda? And all of a sudden, I come face to face with a little boy who'd been trafficked from Uganda. This was no coincidence. This all of a sudden, I became acquainted with, by experience, a wound that someone just had to see. And I pray tonight that just as Pastor Doug prayed, our eyes would be opened and we will begin to see the wounds that surround every single one of our lives. Because the truth is, you don't have to go across to the other side of the world to meet kids who have been trafficked. You go out the front door. The truth is, you don't have to go out to Afghanistan or Pakistan to see people who are broken or hurting. You literally look around the room and you walk out the front door and you see so many wounds that surround every single one of us if we would just have eyes to see. Then Jesus goes on and he says, reach your hand here, put it into my side. You see, once you see a wound, it then demands a reaction. It demands a response of, will you go out and touch some wounds? And the word put, it's the word ballo in the Greek. It's where we get the English word ball from. And it means to throw, to cast or to pour out. The truth is, when you begin to see the wounds that surround your life, it's going to demand a response. Would you pour out of yourself? Would you throw yourself into the situation, even if it means getting your hands dirty? A few years ago, we were invited to go out to Pakistan. 
We were going out for what I thought was going to be a one-off trip with the Dignity Project. And we were able to go and reach 1,100 girls with the Dignity Project, helping to protect them against human trafficking, helping to help them in a very practical and real way to stay in school. It was a phenomenal time. But on the last day of that trip, they took us into a brick factory. I knew nothing about bonded labor at this moment in time. I didn't know what it was to see a slavery that was so blatant. It wasn't covered up. It wasn't hidden like it is in human trafficking. It was a blatant slavery, a generational slavery that's passed on where someone, a grandparent, a great-grandparent took a debt to pay for a dowry or to pay for a surgery and suddenly generations later are still trying to pay off that debt. I met one family and I said, why are you here? What happened? They said, 13 years ago, my wife was pregnant with our child. And so we needed to, um, when she went into labor, complications arose and we needed to pay for cesarean. The problem was that would cost $150 and they didn't have that kind of money. He knew if he went to a bank, he'd probably be declined the loan. But even if not, it would take weeks to process a loan. Meanwhile, his wife needs the surgery today. And so in order to save his wife and unborn child, he took a loan of $150. The only problem was 13 years later, I'm now looking at mum, dad, and their now teenage son. And I said, well, surely by now you've paid it off 13 years, working seven days a week, 14 hours a day making bricks. Surely you've paid it off by now. To which they said, now we are $2,500 because the interest upon the loan is greater than daily wages that we get paid for making the bricks. Bonded labor. And thousands upon thousands are trapped in it. We began to pray. And God put it on our hearts to open a safe house out there in Pakistan, rescuing children out of slavery, putting them into full-time education so that when they go on and graduate, they can pay off their family's debt, but then also sustain their families out of slavery. So we opened the safe house. And I'm going to end with this final story because time's gone. I don't know if Jonathan wants to come. But I'm going to end with this final story. We'd opened our, our center, and at that point, our safe house in Pakistan had, I think, 39 kids that we'd managed to pull out of slavery so far. And for those 39, it was incredible. For those 39, it was a party because all of a sudden, now they can go to sleep at night and not worry about who's going to walk in the room and hurt them. All of a sudden, now these 39 kids can have an education. They can learn to read and write and have a normal childhood. But on that trip, we went back into the brick factories. And I remember being surrounded by all the kids that had not yet been rescued. And so we decided we're going to launch Sunday school. Now, to launch Sunday school in a nation like Pakistan, that in and of itself is incredible. But the Sunday school that we're doing is not in a nice, near, safe building of a church. It's right there on the brick factory yard. We're going right into the enemy's backyard, bringing his hope and his light and his joy. And we were doing that across 24 brick factories. And then suddenly it came to last year and we'd gone through a real difficult time. Uh, we'd come through COVID and COVID was really challenging for one by one because people who had been standing with the charity for years would suddenly have to pull out because they'd been made redundant and they were having financial difficulties. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm, I'm starting to panic because I've got 80 staff to look after and I've got hundreds of mouths to feed and I'm thinking oh Jesus help us and I remember all of a sudden 
making my master plan in this office of how we get through COVID. We were going through a very difficult time in our family life. It was just a painful, painful season. And I remember coming up with a master plan of this is what we're going to do to survive. This is how one by one's going to survive this. I'm not going to take on any new staff. I'm not going to take on any new kids and I'm not going to launch any new projects because right now survival feels like success. And I just made my master plan. And then all of a sudden I received a phone call from our team in Pakistan. And our team called me and they said, Becky, we've just heard about a little girl called Mercy. Mercy was three years old living in a brick factory. And our team called and they said, Mercy was raped, murdered, and then her body just left on the floor of the brick factory for people to walk past because, well, she's just a girl and, well, she's just a slave. And our team were heartbroken, saying, what can we do? And I remember putting the phone down and I said, God, not now. Any time, any other time, you know we would reach out. You know we want to extend our hand to the needy. But God, right now I'm needy and broken. Right now, one by one's in a difficult place. God, any time, but not now. You see, sometimes we don't get to pick the timing of when we see the wounds. Sometimes our eyes will be open. Be careful what you pray. Because if you pray for God to open your eyes, guess what? He will. And you don't get to dictate the timing of that. And I remember putting the phone down thinking, God, not now. And as soon as I uttered those words in my mind, do you know what dropped into my heart? It was the story of the Good Samaritan. And in the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus very wisely picks two certain people. He doesn't pick an agnostic and he doesn't pick an atheist. Jesus, in the story of the Good Samaritan, he picks a priest and he picks a Levite. He chose people who thought they were following God. They thought they were going about God's plans and God's businesses. And God, look at me, I'm so busy doing my church volunteering work. And Lord, look at me, aren't I wonderful? But when the wound suddenly passed them by, they chose to look the other way. And as I put the phone down, I realised I was the priest. And I was the Levite in that moment. Because I wanted to look the other way because I was also hurting at that moment in time. And it just wasn't the right time. And all of a sudden, I realised what I was doing. You see, all the Good Samaritan chose to do was to not look the other way. That's as complicated as it got. He simply chose not to look the other way. And so I remember calling our board and our team saying, okay, we're gonna double our work in Pakistan because while ever we're here, three-year-olds should not be dying on our watch. Three-year-olds should not be being raped and murdered on our watch. And so we're gonna double our work in Pakistan. I remember some of them saying, well, do we have a budget in place for that? Not yet. But you know what? We said yes. I can honestly say it was the most painful yes I've ever said. The most painful yes that I've ever said to Jesus. But last December, the goodness of Jesus, we were able to double the size of the safe house and rescue more lives out of slavery and double our outreach into brick factories. We're now working across 50 brick factories, bringing his hope and his joy and his truth. 
The truth is tonight, there's plenty of wounds. There's plenty of wounds if we would just have eyes to see. There's plenty of wounds on our streets, in our workplaces, on our families. There's plenty of wounds if we would just have eyes to see. But once you see those wounds, it demands a response. And I pray tonight that the Holy Spirit would empower us to say yes, even when it's not easy, even when it's not convenient. Because on the other side of your yes are miracles that he wants to do through you. Miracles of transformation.